This is the Internet Report, where we uncover what's working and what's breaking on the Internet and why. Last week was a bit of a slow week, but there were some interesting developments in terms of applications that have been in the news recently, including TikTok and Fortnite. We also have a really interesting interview with a um, leading or a lead cloud architect at a Fortune 100 com uh, company, and he's going to talk a little bit about um, cloud connectivity and some of the services they use. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to get uh, some of his insight. Um, but before we get to that, we um, we saw last week that Fortnite uh, was pulled from Apple and Google stores for violating uh, their terms of usage um, and trying to make an end run around the collection of payments for in-app purchases. And that's really interesting because that effectively kicked off a chain of events um, where they um, got pulled from the store and then they immediately uh, filed an antitrust lawsuit um, in court. So this was uh, something that they clearly had planned. It's interesting because um, they, they allude to the sort of the Apple tax, if you will, which is uh, takes a 30% cut of all in-app purchases, which is um, pretty, pretty high. Um, I, it was surprising to me. Um, I knew that they, they took a pretty sizable cut, but I didn't realize it was 30%. And they're, they're effectively alleging that this is a monopoly that Google and Apple have created where um, you know, no one can, can really offer any kind of application unless they're really like um, doing everything that Apple and Google um, ask of them. Mm. Um, it was interesting because Microsoft also had a statement about this in terms of how Apple treats um, certain types of applications like gaming applications, for example as not their priority. I think um, in terms of the violation itself, how they orchestrated it is essentially give users another way in to make in-app purchases. So something that kind of bypasses the app store itself. Um, so the 30% cut that Apple takes happens only if you go through the store. And if you don't go do that, then, you know, that's the violation that, you know, kind of, um, kicked Fortnite out of the app store and, and looks like um, Google as well, right? Yeah, Google as well. Um, so, you know, they they shut that down pretty quickly. Um, but it seems like there's there's maybe kind of a broader issue at play, even besides the um, this cut that um, that they're taking from the application developers. It's also um, alleged by Microsoft that they they unfairly treat application uh, uh, sorry uh, gaming um, mm -hmm. applications um, and treat that somehow differently from other apps that are offered um, on uh, on their on the app store yeah I think what's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because not just from a Fortnite perspective but if people start following it other um, you know. Um, folks who go through the app store start following it, then it's going to change how the app store ecosystem works. Um, so it's going to be pretty um, significant to just to see how this plays out and the end result of this. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a similar situation where, for example, artists were rebelling against how their um, music, like how they were compensated through like streaming services like Spotify and so on. Um, you know, these, the developers are, I mean, people want the, the content, they want the applications themselves. So if they're um, not available through the app store, then um, that's going to be a problem for 
um, both Apple and Google. And so it'll be interesting to see how collectively the power of the app developers potentially increases um, mm -hmm. as a result of maybe other folks joining this. Remains to be seen, but um, certainly um, an interesting development and something that we'll continue to look at and see how right. this goes. And then talking about apps, the other, um, you know, newsworthy headline for this week is, is TikTok, um, uh, banning TikTok from the U.S. That deadline's shifted um, and extended to about 90 days. So that takes us all the way up to November. Yeah, so. that's right. And so that, that certainly opens the window for Microsoft to continue their discussions. Um, and there's been talk not only of them potentially taking over, their uh, business in the US, but also in other English speaking countries like the UK and, and uh, New Zealand and um, Australia and so on. So um, something to watch for sure. So um, with that, you know, I think we're gonna go ahead and transition um, to um, talking to, um, or talking about cloud deployments. This is a really interesting discussion that you had uh, with uh, our guest, uh, William Collins. Right, right. I actually um, bumped into William uh, from a packet pushers conversation where he was talking about multi-cloud and, you know, on-ramp services. And um, William's been really involved in terms of cloud design uh, for, for leading Fortune 100 company. So what we're talking about today is in terms of um, the evolution of cloud connectivity, uh, what enterprises, you know, start off with and how they slowly move on to like an on-ramp service. And then for me, the most interesting piece was, you know, around the difference between um, these on-ramp services that, you know, cloud providers offer um, because we've been doing some kind of comparison from a performance perspective across cloud providers. So it was really interesting to um, listen to his take. So stay tuned uh, for that on the Expert Spotlight. Welcome to the Expert Spotlight. Um, this week, we actually have uh, William Collins. Uh, William is the lead cloud architect uh, and works for Fortune 100 company. And over his career, um, he's designed large-scale networks, driven modernization through cloud adoption, and looks to constantly optimize through good design practices and automation. His most recent work has been uh, around hybrid and multi-cloud focused uh, in, in AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, um, Equinix. But outside of his tech, his time is spent with family, woodworking, ice hockey, and classical guitar as well. So uh, William, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So uh, I think one of the things we wanted to focus this discussion around, William, is around, you know, can you use your background, talk about multi-cloud, but also talk about like connectivity into the cloud um, and, and get into some details there. Uh, but to kick this session off, um, how do you, you know, think about evolution uh, when an enterprise is migrating to the cloud, uh, specifically from a connectivity perspective? Sure, that's a good question. So nobody started out multi-cloud, right? We all started out, you know, usually it was AWS and uh, oftentimes it was just a VPN from the data center. You know, and that's when we started figuring out, okay, you know, this cloud thing, you know, how does it enable our business, you know, the, the overall effects it has on application delivery, you know, and how can we integrate it in with our, our business model and what we're doing. So, um, 
VPNs are easy. Most enterprises have some sort of process in place to spin up a, a business to business or land to land VPN for a partner and, you know, off we go. And then, you know, at some point you realize, Hey, um, this, uh, what are these, these direct connects, express routes, interconnects, fast connects, all these really fast private, um, means of connectivity. So then, you know, a lot of, um, you know, what an enterprise will do is look at a lot of different partner connections. So, um, you know, AT&T NetBond, CenturyLink Cloud Connect, even, you know, Equinix Cloud Exchange. So, um, you know, what that enables you to do is instead of having these single VPNs, maybe from, from multiple data centers, um, it'll allow you to kind of piggyback off your existing service with those providers. So say you, say you leverage AT&T for MPLS and you want to, you know, extend it to AWS um, Direct Connect. So you can basically say, okay, AT&T, I want to advertise these routes, you know, over this connection to AWS and, you know, set up your A side and B side VLAN, you know, turn on BGP and kind of off you go. And then when you start looking at like really heavy, you know, performance considerations and, and really looking at your design over time and how you want to scale and, and maybe you start looking at multi-cloud and then the, the colo discussion will come up and you know that's where you have these you know one for one direct connects and express routes and direct connects so you know instead of having a partner in the middle you're connecting with bare metal and right. you're going to terminate it on your own switches and you know set up your own routing and your own policy to, to facilitate all this. How do you, how does the um you know the evolution happen from like you know building that colo and deciding where to uh, you know pick that connection and you know kind of uh, get all of them uh, meshed of sorts? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. So the way that I've seen it happen, pretty much everywhere that um, I've put in design work with this kind of stuff is whatever. Usually the application developers will choose what region they initially want to go to. Hmm. And usually they're going to choose the one that's closer to them or closer to the business. So oftentimes what you see is, okay, well, that's where we're going to maybe put our colas. We're going to put it, you know, we want it really close proximity to the cloud regions we're using. Right. So that's how that kind of happens. And then you kind of move off from, you know, instead of just availability zones and really looking at, um, redundancy that way. We want to look at multi-region from that point and then, you know, spread out that way. Got it. Cool. On these on-ramp services and this one-to-one -one connectivity that you were talking about, uh, the big three have their own variety of it. You have the Express Route, you have Direct Connect and Google Interconnect. Uh, from your experience, while in theory, these are all on-ramp services, what's the difference between these three? Sure. So, when you think about the, the direct connect, express route, interconnect and fast connect, these are only just layer, usually layer two vehicles for connecting to that, that cloud provider. So oftentimes what you're gonna have with those services at that level is you're gonna have um, just the, how you initially you know, set off the process to connect one. Um, and oftentimes, like I know that for a while there, um, AWS had physical direct connects available for some time. Mm. And when, when Azure really got into the space, Microsoft did with Express Route, 
for a while through like an Equinix, you couldn't do a one-to-one -one direct connection with Microsoft. Oh. Um, you had to use a partner connection of some sort, like a cloud exchange from Equinix or um, like Megaport. And even with uh, with Google Interconnect, I think they they had physical direct connects available from the get go when they when they launched Interconnect. So thinking of that, you know, you have sort of a different look and feel there because you know on on one side you have physical connections, and then on the other side you're bringing in a whole new partner connection in between, so it can get complicated. But since then, I mean, Microsoft does have physical. Um, express routes now. So that's changed. And then route advertisements too, some routing policy. So um, they'll have different numbers for how many routes you can actually advertise up into their services, which can bite you sometimes. You know, that's bit me in the past, actually. And, you know, to kind of give you an idea of what happens when you advertise more routes up than you should, the, the direct connect goes down. Oh, it's, wow. Yeah, it's you go hard down. So that's a, you know, you want to make sure that you're on top of those small details that can, you know, come back and get you. One of the things, again, well, thinking about connectivity, we're starting to see these, you know, private connectivity links come up, like, for instance, Azure's private link. Um, how does it contrast and compare with an express route? And, you know, what are the use cases you would think about for using one versus the other? With like a Azure Private Link, Azure Private Link, you can think about as of today, sort of complements your existing connectivity over Express Route. And basically, what it's going to allow you to do is, within a within an Azure VNet, you have your own RFC 1918 space for that whole VNet. You know, maybe a slash 20, slash 24, whatever you have. So. What Private Link will allow you to do is privately interface with Microsoft's um, different PaaS services, you know, their managed services that you're probably already using over that private address space. You know, so that will, you know, there's other ways that organizations have gone to make sure or to try to get private connectivity or at least limit the, the um, footprint and you know, make it as private as they can, but this makes it easy because it'll just take, it actually takes IP addresses straight out of your VNet and allows you to interface that way. Got it. And also so basically the, yeah, accessing dedicated PaaS services, you know, integrated directly with, with their VNet, you know, it would be like using express route, private pairing or in some sort of VPN, removing internet traffic completely, but still being able to reach in directly to that PaaS service privately. Right. Right. It's, it's kind of a common trend in this whole situation of bypassing the internet and, you know, these cloud providers trying to monetize their own backbone. Um, we saw AWS Global Accelerator. We're now talking about Azure Private Link. Um, what's your thought about this, this trend? Yeah, well, you know, the even, even if you look at like um, SD-WAN, so... SD-WAN comes on the market for us networking folks to, to say, hey, we're going to give you an overlay that's, you know, transport agnostic, like you don't have to do MPLS circuits everywhere. But, you know, what is the enterprise probably going to do at the get-go is run SD-WAN on top of MPLS, you know, very risk, risk aversion at its finest. And then if you look at public cloud, you know, the premise of public cloud is to be, you know, to use internet, you know, that's, 
for a while there, these private connections, direct connects, express routes weren't even, you know, they weren't there. You know, a lot of this stuff was brought on from, from enterprise customer demand. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of enterprises are going to try and connect, force everything they can and connect over, you know, private connectivity, if at all possible, using their own RFC 1918 space. And part of that too is the, the demand and the driver for, you know, a lot of big businesses have built, you know, they have acquired a lot of data and a lot of applications over the years that exist in their own on-premises data centers. So when you get into single cloud, multi-cloud, you know, all this stuff at some point, it's got to talk to each other. So in terms of migrating applications, you know, uh, tiered hybrid approach to applications where maybe a, a web front end exists in the cloud, but you still have reusable services back in the data center that lots of things use. Well, what's the easy way to do that is having that private connection in between. Thank you so much for your time and, you know, walking us through this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. That was a really interesting discussion, Archana. Um, it's gonna be interesting to see how the um, network services that are offered by the cloud providers evolved because they're, it seems like they're every year, there's like some new offering um, that, that comes out and uh, you know, it's-, it's I know, they just, they just find new ways to monetize their backbone, right? I mean, they've spent so many years and, and, a, and a lot of, um, you know, dollars building that infrastructure, it makes sense for them to kind of monetize that. But, you know, I think what's interesting for us to keep in touch is to identify how these services are different from each other. There are just so many of them popping up and, and the marketing wrapper around it sometimes obscures uh, why you use, you know, one versus the other. So I think that's an interesting um, topic just to um, get into. How they differ from one another and even if they're needed within the context of just the public internet because there's a lot of marketing kind of hype around this cloudflare launched their own interconnect, interconnect yeah and they messaged a lot around how you can avoid exposure to the public internet so i think there's there that leads to the obvious question of do you really need to be protected from the internet maybe you do maybe you don't um but that's a, right. an open question no um, totally and i think um what i mean the fear around the internet like you know kind of takes people down the path of you know these services do make an impact and there is performance benefits i guess it, it comes down to what is the return on investment on this performance benefit right and, yeah. and we saw and that space and, yeah. with the aws global accelerator in our research last year um that performance does vary so question is if you're investing in a service um just baselining to understand what you can get out of that service i guess becomes important for the enterprise absolutely all right well that's our show so don't forget to subscribe and follow us on twitter and as always if you have questions or feedback or guests or topics you would like to see covered on the show feel free to drop us a note at internet report at thousandeyes.com um, and if you do subscribe you can claim a free t-shirt again just send uh, an email to internet report at thousandeyes.com with your address and t-shirt size and we'll get that shipped right over for you all right till next time <laughs>